It's 12 noon on Wednesday, so it's time for Pastor Mike Trap Live. We're live in our makeshift basement studio here uh, in the basement of Lutheran Church of Hope under the chapel here in West Des Moines. And uh, Emily, yes. we are in the book of Romans. Yeah. And Ezra, too, in the Old Testament. We're going to talk about both today. Yeah. Uh, but Romans is, it, I'm not cool enough to say it's the bomb, but it's <laughs> It's, it's something awesome. like that. Yeah, it's really, it's an amazing, it is, it is as deep as it gets in scripture. Yeah. Um, and yet there's some just really wonderful applications and it's so fun to read it in its totality instead of pulling verses out. So yeah, let's get into it, but let's introduce our wonderful panel of pastors. Yeah, We're ready to dive in. We have Scott Rains. Hi, Scott. Hello, Emily. How's Ankeny? Uh, M- Ankeny is great. We, we're in the middle of graduation season. So we, yeah. we were gone all weekend celebrating my daughter's graduation oh. from uh, college. This weekend is high school graduation. So fun times. Yeah. And yeah. go ahead. I was just going to say before we get to Pat, Scott texted me a, a picture of the liturgy from, was it Carthage yeah, College? Baccalaureate. A Lutheran related college where your yeah. daughter's graduating at baccalaureate. And it was just really fun to see the, it kind of, you know, tugged at my heartstrings. Yeah. It takes us back to the, to the old traditions. Yeah. yeah. And Pat Quaid, yeah. how's Waukee? Well, I think it's day three of, of, uh, summer. of summer. And yeah. I think parents are freaking out. Yeah. I'm with them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm in that boat. They, they went shopping on Sunday or Monday and they found that there's no food in the fridge uh-huh. uh, on day two. That's uh-huh. it. Well, especially with four growing boys <laughs> yeah. in, yeah, in, in your, your household, house. right? Yeah. yeah. And for those dads that tr- try to teach their sons a new trade, like uh, mowing the lawn for the first yeah. time. <laughs> may have come around the corner for the first time and found like half the siding was knocked off the nails. So there's home improvements too. We're, we're way ahead of you because our kids are a lot older and I'm a lot older than you, Pat. But when I taught our kids to mow the lawn, we lost a tree. You oh, know, wow. that, that, it was a small little, you know, just beginning <laughs> tree. But that was the end of that tree. And it was very sad because I like that tree. But, mm-hmm. you know, these things I never happen. learned. But I said I would just do a bad job and then they wouldn't ask me again, <laughs> which is not the Brilliant. best approach. But That happened to me when my wife and I were first married in laundry is I put uh, whites together with reds. Ooh. Yeah, it came out pink. And yeah. that was the end of that. She's That's like, important. you know what? I'm going to have you do other things. Yeah. I'm going to do this. Yeah. And mm-hmm. Now they have I call that a win-win. to protect that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but don't tell him. <laughs> he doesn't want to do it. Okay, so that was our <laughs> that was our opener. We're going to go from that to the deepest right. stuff in all of the yes. Bible, but let's get to it. We got some questions. Why don't we just jump right in? Anybody got any questions? Oh, yeah. No, should have saw that coming. Okay, what do you want our podcast listeners to know about Ezra that might help them get even more out of our Old Testament readings this week? Okay, so Ezra, we're 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 turning the page uh, into two books that are going to go back to back. Ezra and Nehemiah. It's really one book, uh, but it's split into two parts in our English translations. In others, back in the day, it used to be Ezra, first Ezra, and second Ezra, but now it's Ezra and Nehemiah. They're both prophets at the same kind of time, not exactly the same, but one followed another. And they're prophesying God's word in a time when God's people are coming back from Babylonian exile into um, a homecoming in in Jerusalem. Only things get a little bumpy as as they do with God's people, as they still do today Mm -hmm. uh, amongst God's people, including us, uh, because we don't always get it right. And that's going to tie us straight into Romans too. But uh, I guess what I'd want our readers or our listeners here of the podcast and the readers of the Bible to know is we're reading through the whole Holy Bible together and we're going through Ezra and Romans. When it comes to Ezra, uh, keep an eye on how God works through uh, a ruler, Cyrus, who definitely has not given his heart to God uh, on any level whatsoever. Um, There's some darkness, there's some evil, there's some corruption, there's all sorts of things in his government. I mean, he's leading a government that took people exile for crying out loud. But God's, God's not intimidated by that. And God can work mm-hmm. through that, which is hopeful, which is encouraging. Because we get so worried sometimes over, oh, you know, there's this leader here and this leader there at any level of government in any nation. And I think it's important to know God's not wringing his hands over that. God's, mm-hmm. God's not too anxious uh, necessarily over who's in and who's out in these different positions. Mm-hmm. It, it's fascinating. I like that you use the word homecoming because I'm not at all interested in genealogy in... There's some of that in Ezra. But 
But I think if I lived in the experience that my mom, when my grandma died, sent us all a three-page list of the itemized, here's grandma's possessions, what do you want? Mm-hmm. And I was like, I don't, I can't think of anything that I would give to my kids saying, hey, this is our stuff, what do you want? Like, that's just not... But for mom, it was huge. It's yeah. really important. And I, for the people coming back, yeah. the, can you imagine being gone the way they were removed and then coming back or hearing stories from their grandparents or great grandparents, and now they get to be there? I, putting myself into that kind of a place when I read through this, it it adds something important. Yeah. And I just think I just think of the kingdoms that were involved that were large kingdoms, like yeah. huge forces. And yet there was still a, a, a reverence yes. for God's people. And I mean, the temple is sacked and all of the material things that would be able to be burnt down to make into beautiful things, they're put in a treasury and stored for a certain time. And how God, God works through, you know, Persia's king of, of, of writing a decree that years later, another king from a, a, will, will honor and that is tremendous to me in, in seeing the weaving of God's steadfastness to the people. But what, what was great was looking at the scriptures in the first couple, the first chapter of God stirred in the hearts of King Sip, you know, the king, mm-hmm. and then also of the tribes of Benjamin and, and the Levites. And then that unified purpose around worship and then the surrendering of like, we're going we're gonna to walk in humility and then watch what God does. And I think that's a really great lesson for us as we that, jump into Romans. That phrase, God stirred their hearts, showed up a couple of times. Mm-hmm. And that almost can become a prayer for us. Like, mm. Lord, if you stirred my heart, what would that lead to? If you stirred the hearts of our congregations, what, what might that lead to? That's you know gonna, he's doing it. That's going to come up in Romans too. I'm glad you guys mm-hmm. both brought that up. Uh, the rebuilding of the, of, you know, who do we worship? The rebuilding of the temple, the reverence that people have. But the heart part of it, that God's stirring their hearts, that's going to come up in Romans 3 and 4, especially 4, where Paul is writing and saying, hey, it's what's in your heart that matters. It's not, it's not knowing the law, it's obedience to the law. It's not faking it and just saying, well, I have all this knowledge about who God is and what the rules are. The rules are there, so we follow them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're, they're for our benefit. They're for our blessing. Mm-hmm. And with that temple being built, one other thing I'd want our readers of Ezra to know is God is not pro-divorce. It's going to read that way if you aren't careful, but read it through the context. Ezra is uh, celebrating that, but that is not from, pay careful attention. Is that from God or is that from Ezra? Mm -hmm. It's not from God because the rest of scripture, God's very clear on marriage being a lifelong commitment, Mm -hmm. which is going to lead us right into Romans and following God's law and our hope that we have for something beyond the law. Yeah. What stood out as significant to you from the opening of Paul's letter to the Romans? Yeah, I was, I read through it a couple of different times just because I, as I started reading it, I thought, oh, for sure, this is going to be what stands out. But it was, it was different. What stood out to me was uh, Paul being very careful, intentional mm-hmm. uh, in verse 3. The good news yep. is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born. He's talking about Jesus. He was born into King David's family line, and he was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. But he's like, I want you to know how important it is that he's human, mm-hmm. mm. and I want you to know how important it is that he is divine. He's the Son of God. He, uh, the, there's something about the humanity of Jesus that makes it possible for us to follow him. If he lives the kind of life that he lives, if he has the uh, relationship with his Heavenly Father that he has just because he's God, I, I can't have that kind of life or a relationship. But if he does that as a human being, I can follow him when he says, follow mm. me. Right. And he can save me yeah. when he dies on the cross and is raised on the third day because he's God. Right. And I, I look at this and I, in of course, Roman had a Caesar um, and a king that was earthly and everybody bowed down to this son of God. Right. Yes. And, and so... Because, because the emperor was called son of God in, in that culture. Right. Yeah. And so... Paul is very matter of fact going right at like this. There's a difference between kings of this earth mm-hmm. and, and and the king of kings, and yeah. he's not mincing words, but he's being very you know he's linking what took place through the the lineage of of King David and and the excitement 
that the Holy Spirit is going to do uh, through the spoken word. Mm-hmm. Yep. The tie in with David, so it ties it into history. So he's mm-hmm. saying, for those of you who are Jews, because Paul's writing to the church in Rome before he gets there. We read that he got there in Acts mm-hmm. last week. But now, before he gets there, he's writing this letter to Rome saying, I'm coming. I've tried to come before, but, but I'm really going to come, and I can't wait. It's going to be great. But he knows he's writing to a church that is partly Gentile and partly Jew. And so, remember, listeners, Gentiles are those who are non-Jews. And so, there are people who are descendants of Abraham and Sarah, would be well-versed in the law, would be well-versed in Jewish traditions. And then there's the Gentiles who would not be. And Paul, one of the big themes he's hitting right from the beginning here in his opening is, I'm going to tie it into history for those of you who are the Jews, but I'm also going to tie it in to the fact that we all need Jesus. So the good news isn't me. The good news isn't that you're a church. The good news isn't that, hey, Christianity is just breaking. This is all good. But the real gospel, the real good news is Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Let me point you to him. And then he kind of ramps up to that when he says, I'm not ashamed of this good news. Because of Jesus Christ, because it's the power of God to save everybody, to save the world. And, and then he says, um, and so from start to finish, this is how God makes us right in his sight. That is Romans chapter one, verse 17. Making us right in God's sight is what Romans is all about. Mm-hmm. Paul wants everyone to know in this church in Rome. And Rome, Rome is kind of considered the center of the known world in, in biblical times, in this particular time. And so Paul's writing to the central kind of city of all of the empire. This is as big as it gets. And so he's writing his deepest treatise. He's writing this theological masterpiece. And it it really all boils down to this simple truth. Let me explain to you how you get right in God's sight. And it isn't what you think. And and nor is it still today what a lot of Christians think. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Paul is building bridges to three kind of distinct communities. Uh, he's, he's building a bridge for the Messianic Jews that, you know, Peter would have gone and brought and established the church in Rome earlier on. And there's fragmentations within the early church between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. And then you have those that are followers of the Gentile or, the, or Caesar, uh, who is the son of God. He's building bridges and saying, at the foot of the cross, we're going to be all equal here yeah. and uh, all are invited to come in here. And, and the power of God uh, to make us right, it, it, it's amazing. So it's the same power that stirs in Cyrus's heart, a Gentile leader in his heart, so that Ezra can say, hey, we want to go back to Jerusalem. Uh, I, I had not noticed when we were reading through um, Acts, Aquila and Priscilla were from the area around Rome, and they got deported by the person in power. Claudius Caesar says, I don't want the Jews in here. He kicked them out. Now Paul's going back where they just were kicked out mm-hmm. and, and establishing the church and saying, I'm not scared of your earthly power because there's a power that is much greater than mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Your earthly power isn't enough. I'm going to, I'm going to see your highest levels of power. I'm going to raise you is what Paul's saying to a real power that actually can conquer death, mm-hmm. that can forgive sins, that can kick open the door to heaven for anybody who puts their faith in Jesus. More on that as we go. What is Paul's point and how does he connect the dots between creation, knowing God and idolatry in Romans 1 verses 18 through 23? You gave it to the California kid, the native yeah. California kid. You grew up with redwoods and oceans and beautiful vistas. Cre- beautiful creation. You know, Paul is, Paul is establishing and kind of connecting from the opening story of Genesis of that God created, you know, with his words, things came into life. And so as a, as a, as a human sapien who's living on this earth, we get these opportunities to come to vistas or cliffs and to look over the majesty of God or look up in the heavens. And you see that there's an order. There's, there's certain things that are in certain places that bring just an awe and a majesty. And and so Paul takes what is around him. I mean, Rome sits kind of in a valley. There's there's high places, there's low places. Mm-hmm. It's just like, look around you. Mm-hmm. Like there is something special here that is not just man-made, but it was gifted to you by your creator. And so instead of, you know, and and Paul will go on later to talk about how how human beings then started to build idols over animals and things that were found on this earth. And he says, that's a, that's a 
that's a strain away from your focus. It should be on God mm-hmm. and, and not on other things. Mm-hmm. The, the way what we learned in the book of Acts is the way God stirs our hearts is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at a, a beautiful scene in nature, I um, I was playing. I, I grew up on a farm. There were three houses on the farm: a trailer house, a little house, and a big house. And we moved into the big house, and the Duffneys moved into the trailer house. And Eddie Duffney was my playmate for a couple of years. Nice. One summer, we're lying in the ditch, looking up at the summer sky. We were tired, resting. He says, do you believe in God? I was seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, the first time someone had really asked me, or I had the opportunity to say, what do I believe? And, and I said, yes, primarily because I was looking at how big creation... You get these nudge. We talk, we use the language nudge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, is the Holy Spirit nudging you in a direction? And I think the more often we say yes to those nudges and take a step in the direction of faith, um, that our faith grows and, and, and we get more opportunities. But when we say no, oh, I wonder if God created that sunrise. I wonder if God created that mountain. Then we just stop and forget about it. That, it can begin a, a long process of the hardening of our heart. Mm-hmm. It can go either direction. Mm-hmm. Paul also emphasizes in addition to you know using creation and saying look at this and so there is a god paul is saying so you have no excuse mm-hmm. and remember he's writing to jews and gentiles the jews would know there's a god from their history at least they've heard of him whether they believe or not they've heard a lot about him the gentiles may or may not have they they may have been worshiping other gods idols no gods who knows and so he's saying Nobody has an excuse not to believe that there is a creator because look at creation. Mm -hmm. So when you look at creation, it implies very strongly a creator that these things don't just come to be by themselves. Now we're getting into a whole thing here with Genesis, but that's what Paul's doing on purpose. Mm -hmm. He's tying in our salvation through Christ by faith to the beginning of creation, how God created things, how God wants an order to those things that he's created and that uh, ultimately, right from the beginning, we rebel. And so now Paul's going to use the same kind of original sin from Genesis story, the Garden of Eden, to talk about, here's what you do, because I give you the freedom to either choose to obey me or to disobey and to bite into the forbidden fruit, so to speak. Well, you've done it, Paul says. And I'm not just talking about the Gentiles, be, be, those of you who are the religious people. I'm talking about you too. We've all done it. We've all bitten into the forbidden fruit. And if because of that, let me now point you to the hope. So if you say, well, how am I supposed to know that there's a God? Paul's answering that right away. Mm -hmm. But he's also tying creation into our need for a savior. It's not just the glory of creation. It is that, as you guys really articulately pointed out. It's also how that shows us our need for something more. What we need is God's grace. And what we need is that grace to be given to all people, uh, not just those who think they've earned it, which is the most dangerous kind of religious person. Yeah, and I think Paul is just lifting up for those that are reading or hearing this letter for the first time. Don't take don't take it um, don't take your life for uh, granted. Like he's bringing a first order question: like, where did you get your life from? Right. Mm. And we don't pause enough to think about that. Often, uh, we just we just kind of get up, we take our de- our breath, and we keep moving with our task. But Paul's just saying, "Hey, let's take a moment here and just give thanks for, like, where did you get mm-hmm. your life from? Mm-hmm. Who's the source of that?" It's mm-hmm. good. How can we faithfully apply what the Bible says about sexual relationships for first and twenty first century readers of Romans? This is a this is a tough question for a lot of people. And, and they trip up over this. So we're going to take our time unapologetically on this one. Not because it's Paul's main point. This is just a couple of verses in a much, much bigger kind of uh, letter that he's writing about something way broader than just who can have sex with whom. And that's worth noting uh, right from the start, because these verses get proof texted a lot. They get pulled out and slapped on. How many different sermons, Bible studies, uh, posts on social media do we see where verses 26 and 27 of Romans 1 are used to push one agenda or another? And so really what that, what that points us to is the problem. And Paul has already introduced that by saying, look, God's wrath is pouring out for you because 
you come up with your own wisdom. You come up with your own ways of doing things, and you think you know more than God. Mm -hmm. You think you have a better view on these things. And so I think it's important to start in the right place and the, the, gently and with love in my heart because I'm a part of this world that's tempted to do this and falls into this temptation myself sometimes to be like, eh, yeah, I'm going to bring my agenda into Scripture. But I would, I would caution or I would, I would challenge with, with love, try to speak a truth and love to our listeners and Bible readers out there. When you read the Bible, are you starting with your agenda and trying to get the Bible to fit? Or are you starting with what the Word of God says and letting that challenge what might ever be our agenda? And this goes in every direction. This goes left, this goes right, this goes moderate, this goes everywhere in between. If we say, well, I have this view and it's really important to me and I learned it from my uncle or I learned it from my friends or I learned it on social media, or I learned it on the news, or I learned it on, you know, I read a few books or a lot of books. Paul's not too impressed with our, our wisdom, no matter how much intelligence we have. And so he, I think this is really important. What is the source for our views? Is it the words of the world or is it the word of God? And if it's the word of God, well, this is going to challenge a lot of people uh, on a lot of different levels. And it's not just what blatantly seems like it's going to be. Let's look at what it actually says in Romans chapter one, starting in verse 26. That is why God abandoned them to their shameful desires. Even the women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And then the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. Men did shameful things with other men. And as a result of this sin, they suffered within themselves the penalty they deserved. All right, Christian, because Paul's writing this to the church. He's writing it to mm -hmm. Christians. So I'm going to say this to Christians. All right, Christian, does your heart and do your words and does your feelings about this whole issue when it comes to who can have sex with who in a biblical way, does it just have conviction or does it also have compassion? Because as followers of Jesus, it better be both because there's our example. Jesus had a very high view ethically. He, he, he taught that marriage, and he ties it into creation, which Paul's doing here in the beginning chapters of Romans. He says, look, from the beginning of creation, Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, he says it in Matthew 19. He says, from the very beginning, God created them, male and female, the human race, male and female. And for this reason, that's why a man and a woman can be married and the two become one. So in other words, I'm establishing marriage, God is saying, and it's from the beginning of creation, and it's affirmed in the New Testament, it is a timeless law. This is not just another rule from Leviticus that says, hey, you shouldn't wear two fabrics in your shirt, or you shouldn't be eating shellfish, or you shouldn't be doing whatever, which we know that the new covenant fulfills, that Christ fulfills that, and that we are no longer bound by those laws. So people say, well, that's the same thing on this, because that's what I want it to be. We can want it all we want, but that isn't going to fit with actually the arc of Scripture, that this is not a ceremonial law, this is not a civil law, this is a moral law. It's not about how many fabrics are in your shirt. This is about how do we relate to one another. And in Genesis, how does, how does God establish the gift of sex, which he gives to a man and a woman to share within a marriage? He gives this gift um, in a way where he says, this is the fulfillment of things that are diverse, it fits the theme of scripture. It's really a beautiful thing. It's heaven and earth that God created the heavens and the earth. First verses of the Bible. Well, those aren't the same. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and yet they come together beautifully. Uh, when we are faithful, when we get it right, when we see God the way God is. Uh, God created um, us male and female, not the same. But so sex between a man and a woman in a marriage is these opposites coming together. It's a part of God's creation. It's not just okay, well, who says who can have sex with who? It goes deeper than that. Paul forces us to go deeper on this issue. But if we're going to have conviction on that, we better have compassion. Mm -hmm. Look who Jesus hung out with, sexual sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors. They called him a friend of sinners. Does that describe you, Christian? Does that describe us? Does that describe our church or our churches that we're all a part of? Are we as filled with compassion as we are with conviction. And in fact, I would say compassion is more important considering Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love. And so if we're known as a church more for where we stand on LGBTQ issues than we are on our compassion for people who are LGBTQ plus, we have lost our way. That is not biblical Christianity. 
We better be known first and foremost for our compassion. Yep, our conviction matters too. It mattered to Jesus. But it's not just about a justice issue. It's not just about injustice over on one side of the, of the spectrum or immorality on the other. It's about an invitation. It's about, it's about God and through God's word here in Romans 1, 2, and 3, not just Romans 1. If we just read Romans 1, we're like, whew, okay, mm-hmm. this is where the line is. This is the boundary. But if we put it in the context of the rest of Romans and in context with the rest of the Bible, it's still there. It's still a challenge sexually for any of us who want to say, well, we should be able to do whatever we want. And we get to tell God we know better than God on where those lines are. That's dangerous, Paul's saying. But equally dangerous is to dismiss people in a self-righteous way just because we see them as the other. And maybe we aren't doing that, but they are. And so therefore we're in and they're not. Paul, more importantly, God's word will not give us any room to hold that view. That is not a biblically faithful Christian view to say that we can have conviction without compassion. If we don't love the people that we say, I mean, if we don't love first, we've completely lost our way. Verse 25 stands out to me, and and I think it probably gets overlooked by most of us because it's bookended by the tweetable verses. But verse 25 says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. And I, I didn't research enough of this, you know, this week to, to say, but you can look up the cult around temple worship in Rome, in, in Greco-Roman history, and there were sexual practices that were worship practices. Yep. And so part of what Paul is... Uh, pointing out in here is a, a critique of the worship of the false gods yep. that that was going on in his day. Yeah, there's a good chance that children and women were being misused, yep. and and again, Paul is not there. He's writing a letter, but he's he's bringing light. He's bringing the light of Christ into the darkness because these are communities that are missional. They're trying to uh, share truth and love and grace and kindness with people who are maybe looking at their circumstances going, I thought it was in this idol. Um, I'm not finding much life here. Where's the source of this life, this truth, this way that will bring abundance? Um, and, and so Paul is, Paul is not mincing words. It's a difficult context. It's challenging. It's a challenging one. And, I, but, but today, it's the missional thing where we see people being used and getting hurt all the time. Absolutely. And that happens in uh, heterosexual marriage. Absolutely. We, we t- uh, when I meet with couples who are getting ready to be married, a uh, part of what I ask them to think about, I ask them, what's the opposite of love? And uh, what, where I've learned, a lot of people, I would respond hate or uh, indifference or apathy or something like that. But when Jesus says there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends, we see a movement to love, that love moves away from me toward the other uh, in in a way to help them and lift them up and all all sorts of things. Uh, The opposite movement would be to use someone, and I'm going to use you for my sake and my benefit. And so whether you're in a dating relationship or a a married relationship, I would encourage you to be continually asking the question, am I genuinely in this to love the other or do I see times when it's really more about trying to use someone and there's repentance that's needed when that's the case? Let's, let's apply this even deeper. So the question says, first century Rome, that's who mm-hmm. Paul's writing to. How are they going to apply it? And as, Pat, you brought this up. First century Rome, uh, the claim is from some didn't know anything about sexual orientation. This is all about prostitution or abuse of children. It's certainly included here. That's for sure. But if we put this in the context of the rest of Romans and the rest of the Bible and Paul's clear connection between what he's writing about and creation in Genesis, as you said, Scott, it's not about who's having sex with whom. It's who do I worship? Am I worshiping God or am I worshiping me and the world by following the world and doing things? Again, who's the source for us on this creator Mm -hmm. or creation? That's Paul's bigger point here. And it is a much bigger point here. Are you worshiping the creator or are you going to worship somebody else that was created and their view or their wisdom or their ethic or their, their cultural norm? I think that's really dangerous to do. But let, let me be really 
as clear as I possibly can be on this. Uh, so there are people out there who are listening uh, who are identified as gay or lesbian. And so you read these verses and you're like, ah, this isn't Leviticus. This is New Testament. Mm-hmm. This is really challenging for me. And at a minimum, all of us know and love someone uh, or a lot of people who are um, identify as gay or lesbian. Are they welcome in God's kingdom? Are they welcome in his church? Are they welcome in the community of believers? There is no indication here, none whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Other, in fact, the opposite is clear in the context of the rest of Romans. Not only are you welcome, you're invited, mm-hmm. you're included, uh, you, are, you are to be loved. And if you aren't loved, mm-hmm. I would suggest the greater sin isn't the sexual sin. It's the religious self-righteous hypocrisy Making judgment. of judgmentally saying you don't belong here, uh, that you don't somehow get to fit here. Uh, for those who want more on this, there are books that we all read that influence us. And people say, well, are you aware that there's this book from this progressive left-leaning Christian or, or this super conservative right-leaning Christian? I get nervous. I've read them all. <laughs> I think I've, I've read all the big ones anyway. There are three that I recommend quickly. People to be loved by Preston Sprinkle. God in the gate. That, that would be a view that would be much more like what we teach here at Hope. But sometimes it's important to read opposite views. And so I think the best and most scholarly of those is by an author named Matthew Vines called God and the Gay Christian. And then there's a wonderful book by a guy named Caleb Kaltenbach called Messy Grace. Um, He grew up in a family where both his parents were gay and he became a Christian uh, and tried to come to terms with it all and did so in a way that was filled with conviction and truth. But more importantly, with compassion and love, these are still his parents. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These, are, these are still people that you're connected to. And so we have to ask, is God's grace enough to hold us together as churches, to hold us together as families, to hold us together as friends? Is God's grace enough? Or are we going to let the world teach us that when we have different views on these issues, we don't get to hang out together? To me, that's tragic and the opposite of how, how things are supposed to be as Paul is laying them out here in the book of Romans. Yeah. To our next question, how does Romans 2 challenge us when we feel the urge to judge sinful people? So just in case you thought I was pushing that too hard, (laughs) like judging is wrong, Paul probably sensing that jumps right in. And it's also probably worth noting before we completely get into this next question, uh, that not only is Paul going after men who are having sex with men and challenging them and women who are having sex with women. Uh, that it's not just about prostitution, it's not just about child abuse, that by tying it into creation, he's saying, oh, it's, it's also about something else. And even if at that time they didn't know about sexual orientation in the way we do today, as some argue, it still doesn't change his point. He's, he's going bigger than that. He's not just talking about orientation, he's talking about behavior. Uh, and so the orientation isn't sinful anyway, biblically speaking. It's mm-hmm. the behavior that would be sinful. Mm-hmm. So if you are gay, if you are lesbian and you're listening to this, you are not out with God because you are gay or because you're lesbian any more than anybody else is out mm-hmm. with God. There, as you were saying, Scott, there are people who are straight and married mm-hmm. who could step outside of God's boundaries and his intent for what a sexual relationship is supposed to be about. But in case we think it's all about sex, it's not. Paul clearly starts in verse 29, just a couple of verses later. He says, that was the example, but now let me give you the full list. Wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling. Anybody quarrel? You know, we're, <laughs> we're, we're in the same boat as, as men who are having sex yeah. with men and women who are having sex with men. It's not God's intent. It's sinful. It goes on. Deception, malicious behavior, gossip. Anybody ever gossip? backstabbers. Uh, You can read the list. It goes on and on and on, and it gets harder and harder and harder to start to feel like, well, I stand right before a holy God because of my religious performance, because of my behavior, which gets into the judgmentalism of the question that is before us now from Romans 2. You're saying we're we're talking about judging sinful people. We're all those sinful people. We are all sinful people in need of a savior. Yes. So Pat, what do we do? Well, I think I think opening part of of uh, Paul's letter, uh, second chapter. You may think you can con- condemn such people, but you are just as bad, mm-hmm. and you have no excuse. 
When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do the very same things. So, you know, Paul in the, in the breath where he's bringing, you know, everything into the light, like you're no better than anybody else. Um, so here, you know, I'm giving you this opportunity to just come clean, admit that there's nothing that uh, will give you life or save your life unless you are connected to Jesus Christ. Right. Ezra is written to people in the post-exilic period. Mm-hmm. That means there was a pre-exilic period. Mm-hmm. And what was going on in the pre-exilic period was the prophets, God was raising them up to point out uh, their sin, but the people were refusing to repent. And so the prophets often referred to this as wickedness. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 6, in the New Revised Standard Version says, no one repents of wickedness, saying, what have I done? And so I think it's interesting in chapter 1, Paul uses the, the phrase, the language of wickedness quite a bit. He does. Three different times it's God abandoned them, God abandoned them, God abandoned them. I think some other translations say God gave them over. God. But, but to me, it's this long... Like God wants to be in a relationship with us. God wants us to follow him faithfully moment by moment, day after day. Mm-hmm. But we go through these seasons where we, I'm going to go my own way and I'm going to I'm chart my own path. And God, uh, God allows, a, a, like, a, it is one of the hardest parenting techniques for me to allow my kids to make mistakes and then be ready uh, mm-hmm. when they come to their senses is the language in the prodigal son. When he comes to his senses, he returns to the father. Mm-hmm. Be ready when, when that happens. And, so, and we all lose our senses and then come to our senses, and repentance is necessary when that happens. And Paul keeps on going in, in chapter 2 to say, what is it that's going to lead someone who refuses to, a wicked person who refuses to repent, what's going to lead them to a place where they do repent? And it was, it's really surprising to me. Paul says it's the kindness of God. Mm-hmm. Don't you see how wonderfully patient and kind and loving God is with you? Yeah. I always would feel like, no, it's someone just like reminding me of how awful and guilty I, that's what's going to lead me to repentance. And Paul says, yeah, sometimes, but maybe this is the best way. Yeah. And if you come into a community that's filled with grace and God's kindness, how overflowing is that? We Changes hear that all the, the time. Atmosphere. People walk into our, mm-hmm. our our church facilities or come into contact because of a relationship uh, of a friend or somebody, and they go, "That person's different. They mm-hmm. they receive me with mm-hmm. open arms. They their kindness when they came to the hospital or provided a meal while my loved one was in the mm-hmm. hospital. It overwhelmed me. I've never experienced that. And and so this community, Paul is continuing to just beg them. Look to Christ in all things. You know, it's 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 taking those three commandments. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You know, you worship Him. Walk humbly. Take a day rest. If you're having a bad day because your kids take out the side of your house, <laughs> remember it's just a house. Yeah, you know. Right. Uh, and so I think there's this calling uh, over and over again about God's people living out. God's grace, because I, it, it's just, it, it's, a, it's a calling up. I think what Paul's forcing the reader to do, if we're going to pay any attention at all to what he's saying here, is you're going to have to go deeper into this. Instead of minimizing and reducing Christianity to a bunch of, they're doing this wrong, they're doing that wrong, and I'm not. If that's how your Christianity sounds, if that's how the group of people you do Christianity with sound, is our, our unifying point is how we're against them, whoever them is. Our unifying point is we don't like that group. We don't like their view. We don't like what they do. We don't like their behavior. This is, this is the deepest book in the whole New Testament, and it's pushing this point louder than any other point at the beginning. Paul's saying to the Gentiles, look, in the Jews too who would do this in Romans 1, your immorality is, is going to kill you. It's going to lead to death. But in Romans 2, he says, your self-righteousness, Jewish people, is going to lead to your death. And death is death. Either way you die. There's only one way in. There's only one hope. And Scott, you, you referenced it, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, depending on the English translation you have. It's your kindness that leads to repentance. It, the kindness of God, the kindness of the Lord 
is what inspires repentance, the change of heart. Because people say, well, you got to hit repentance. We talk about, we preach and teach repentance all the time. But what's the inspiration of repentance? Condemning people, saying how horrible they are? Yes, we need to speak this truth. If my concern with the church of the 21st century is, and Pat, you alluded to this, we have people who come to hope all the time. This is not me saying what I want them to say. This is me getting flooded and hearing them say things like this all the time. They either say, I went to a church that was all about trying to get the Bible to sound like the world uh, and never letting it challenge our worldviews. And it just didn't feel like Jesus to me. It didn't, it, it not only did it not feel like it, it's just biblically insupportable where we just say, oh, well, everybody just do whatever they want. And it's just the Bible anyway, and who cares? And there's a, there was just, well, there's no transformation then. There's no, there's no hope. There's no, there's no need for grace or salvation because everybody's in just because they want to be. On the other hand, there's the problem with rule or law-oriented Christianity, which leads to judgmentalism. And that's what Paul's nailing here in Romans 2. You can't go there. There's no room for grace. It's funny how grace is great for a lot of us until it's given to them, you know, until it's given to the other person. It's, it's, it's great for me. And it's nice that God gives it to me, but it's almost this implication that, you know, self-righteous Christianity would teach you get grace because you've earned it. You get grace because you have the right worldview. You get grace because you vote the right way. You get grace because you don't do those behaviors. You get grace because they do and you don't. And so you're better than them, and that ought to score something for you, you know, on Judgment Day. No, it's, it's not grace if we had to earn it or deserve it. It's only grace if it's given to us and we didn't deserve it or earn it. And grace, grace is an amazing thing. Yeah, you're not working it out. Yeah. No, you're not working it out. That's right. After that, then I'm going to jump to a question that says, what is and is not the purpose of God's law? I'll, I'll do a topic sentence and I'll let you guys go further. Romans chapter 319 makes this clear. It says the purpose of the law is to convict all of us, not just the Gentiles or not just the Jews, but all of us of our sins. Uh, Paul's also going to talk here about the, the motivation the sin that leads to the sinfulness. Um, he does that right from the start too in Romans 1 in his introduction, that it's the, it's the motivation that we have inside that leads to the behavior, which causes so many problems along the way and, and leads to an unfaithful version of Christianity. It isn't biblical Christianity. So it is to convict us of all our sins. What it is not, it's not a list of right behaviors that I use to gain false confidence that I'm saved. I don't remember if it was before uh, the camera started or if it was after, but you said um, Paul's getting at this idea of what does it look like to stand right with God. And the Jewish religious world of Jesus' day in the early church world, the way to stand right with God was by following the law. And fulfilling it. Paul's trying to say, no, uh, that's actually not the purpose Mm -hmm. of the law to, to make you right with God. Yeah. So then, if no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands, then how can we and how can anyone get right with God? Pat? Yeah, it's, you know, it's simply surrendering surrendering your life to the fact that Christ uh, came for you. Um, and, you know, it's it's the reminder of the baptismal washing over you, that you're drowning, that you're your sin and your death were drowned in baptism, and Christ has given you this new life. Um, and to embrace that new life means you're going to walk with humility. You're not going to always have the right answers. You're going to deny yourself sometime and pick up a cross that isn't yours right. to help bear with somebody a trial, a season. As chaotic as it is, you're willing to surrender your life for somebody else. I think we just celebrated a major holiday as a nation on Monday for those that are willing to go um, and make those sacrifices. Uh, and so there's no greater love than that. And and Jesus speaks to that. So for for Paul, he's, he's talking about that no one can be made right because of their work. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's through Christ. Mm-hmm. Verse 22, we're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ and this is true for everyone, everyone. who believes, mm-hmm. no matter who we are. Yeah. Uh, going back to the law, it's interesting to me, why didn't God give the law to Adam? Right. Why didn't God give the law to Abram? Why does God wait? And it's, it's almost like God's 
developing a relationship with people for quite a while, and then comes mm-hmm. the law. And and the way I've started to think about the law of Moses is now you're moving from slavery to freedom. The law is less about these rules that you have to follow. It's more about God saying a description of here's what it looks like to live together as God's free people. That, that changes things significantly for me. First two chapters of Romans are about death. Mm. You, you, we're going to die permanently, eternally, when we um, live our own way, uh, create our own, worship creation instead of cre- and creator, or we're going to dive through our self-righteous judgmentalism and getting a false assurance that thinks that tells us we're going to stand right before a holy God on the day of judgment because of our behavior, because of what we've done. If that's what Christianity has become, if that's what it's reduced to, we've completely missed the point. Paul makes this clear. So he uses the first two chapters to set up the third chapter and really the rest of the book of Romans. The first two chapters are about death. Halfway through Romans 3, it's about life. He shifts. He says, "Okay, so there, now that I've kicked the hope out of you, now, now that now that you well, now that I've kicked the hope in yourself out of you, or the yeah. hope in your group, you're caught. Yes. Now, now that now that you thought you were in because of your ancestry, or you thought you were in because you're a member of a church, or you thought you were in for whatever reason, um, or because God just loves everybody and you can do anything you want." Paul makes it really clear: by no means should you do that. You, now that I've kicked the hope out of creation, let me point you to the creator who saves through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's not by your own good works, it's by faith, which will become Paul's repeated theme in these chapters about life the rest of the way through. Final question. What do Paul's words about Jewish, Jewish circumcision in chapter four have to do with the Romans or us? And how do they point us to what our world really needs? Yeah, Remember, I, I go back a couple of chapters earlier at the end of chapter two you're not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you did all the Jewish rituals, including circumcision. Um, You're you're a true Jew if your heart is right with God, Mm -hmm. is what Paul says. And and that's not, it's for Jewish people, that's for Gentile people. Think about Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. And the Samaritans despise, uh, the Jewish people despise the Samaritans. Mm -hmm. And she's asking, where's the true place to worship? And, And Jesus ends up saying, uh, true worshipers worship me in spirit and in truth. So there's this uh, coming together of um, the teachings of Jesus and the spirit of God and the the people of God to help us know this, this is what true faith is all about. This is what true life mm-hmm. is all about. Not just the, the ritual, but what it points to. Yeah, and the qualities of Abraham wasn't that he was circumcised that made him faithful, he was already faithful. Just like Ezra, trying that all back together again, God's hand was on Ezra because Ezra was faithful. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't because of what he was doing. There was parts of him that I'm sure were broken, just like all of us. Uh, Just like Abraham, he fell a few times, I believe. Uh, But yet his faith was in the right place. It wasn't in himself. And and so it's, again, broadening this understanding between these communities of faith that are trying to like divide and and cut instead of working together in this understanding that Christ is the one that unifies us. And it was, again, tying back to Ezra, they had a unified purpose in building that temple. And it's talk about the strength of community when we can unify on the right things, yeah. like Christ, yeah. then things can get done and God can move in significant ways. And, and so this life of community and being unified in purpose around Christ allows for life and new beginnings, which I think is kind of the exciting part as you see the expansion of the church in Rome. Yeah, Abraham, Paul goes out of his way to say Abraham was not made right with God because he was circumcised. Circumcised, Circumcision marked the faith that Mm -hmm. saved him. Even Abraham, and Hebrews will hit that later even harder, say it's by faith that this whole cloud of witnesses uh, stands right before holy God. It's by faith we have any hope to stand right before Holy God. And actually our hope turns to full-blown assurance, a blessed assurance that because of Christ, because of what he's done instead of what we do, too much religion these days is focused on our performance. Not enough is focused on what Jesus has done. Romans won't let us have that. It won't won't let us stay in that wrong place where we're going to end up with uh, false assurance 
and a judgmental spirit on one hand or an immorality at levels that we see in our world today where we say, well, we don't need to worry about what the creator thinks. We'll just follow creation. We'll go with the flow, whatever, whatever the world says. So it gets back to what's our, what's our source for truth that sets us free. Mm. And Paul says, the only truth that can set you free has a name and his name is Jesus. And this Jesus died on a cross to um, wipe out all of our sins. And we're all sinners. Again, Paul isn't just saying Jesus forgives our sins that we commit. This is deeper than that. He's saying he forgives our sinful nature, our sinfulness, the stuff that it's not just the motivation I talked about earlier. It's the desire for power. It's the desire for knowledge. That's original sin. That's why we commit sins. That's why there's sexual sinners. That's why there's gossipers. That's why there's greedy people. That's why there's prideful people. It's because we're like Adam and Eve in the garden again. We, we're like, ah, yeah, God wants me to do this, but just seems like this is a better way to go. And in, in, to keep us from getting too confident about ourselves in that, Paul's making it very clear. We all bite into that fruit. We all do the same thing. And a lot of times it's our fear that causes us to say, well, they're in and they're out. They're, they're right and they're wrong. Paul's saying everybody can be in through faith in Jesus Christ. Now that's good news. I mean, we, we talked about that earlier. This, this, the, it is the power, the gospel, the good news is the power of God to save us all. And it's the only thing powerful enough. It's the only thing big enough. It's the only thing righteous enough to make right people who don't just commit sins like me, but people who are sinful people by, by our nature that leads to this sinfulness. Because what Christianity does is it sets us free from thinking, I need to control everything. I need to be in charge of everything. I need to tell God who's in and who's out in the kingdom of heaven. And it's a total surrender. <laughs> That just makes me happy just to say that. Mm. It takes all the pressure off. It's a total surrender where we say, God, my life is yours. Show me your ways so that I can walk with you. And most of all, rain down your grace upon me and I'll put my faith and my trust in that. And when we do that, we can walk in the assurance that we're living in grace. It's grace that saves us. It's not our performance. It's God's grace. And because of that, uh, we have hope. I guess that's yeah. why we're a church of hope after yeah. all, right? Amen. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. You hold on to that hope, and we will see you this weekend at worship. Thanks for joining us today. Please make sure to like and subscribe on your favorite platform, and we'll see you next time.